individuals who battle addiction ought to be treated as patients, not as prisoners. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. So I'm sitting right here with my good friend Jacob Beaumont, who is the Director of Criminal Justice Reform for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. Jacob actually got the opportunity to speak to one of the greatest criminal justice reform advocates in our state or any state, Chris Steele. But before we get started, I want to turn the mic over to Jacob and let him tell you about some really awesome ways that you can get involved in criminal justice reform. Thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate that. If you're looking to get involved in a big criminal justice reform action, the State Question 805 campaign is a great way to get involved on the ground level. You'll hear Chris and I talk about this extensively. If you want to get involved, signing, gathering signatures, and participate in that, we've got three great opportunities uh, in the state of Oklahoma for you coming up. Uh, on Saturday, February 15th, we're going to be doing a cross-state kickoff of the campaign. And if you are in Oklahoma City, you can get involved that morning, Saturday, February 15th, from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at the Auditorium at the Douglas, located at 600 North High Avenue in Oklahoma City. Uh, If you're wanting to get involved on the Tulsa side of things, across the turnpike later that day on the 15th, we'll be uh, working from 3 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Tulsa Dream Center, located at 200 West 46th Street North here in Tulsa. We'd love to have you come out and join us. These will be family-friendly events, so bring everybody out. If you're looking to sign the petition and you want to come visit us at the Mental Health Association and do so, we're putting on our own signature gathering event February 17th. That's a Monday here at Legacy Plaza in the Collaboration Cafe. So come on by 5330 East 31st Street on the main level from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and sign the petition to uh, support State Question 805. And so with that, the mental health download starts now. To many of our listeners, you're Chris Steele, Executive Director of Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform. What they may not know is that before that, you were Chris Steele, State Representative and eventual Speaker of the House in the Oklahoma Legislature. And before that, you were Chris Steele, Public School Teacher and and Minister. Uh, So for our audience, could you help me connect the dots? Uh, Why education and ministry? Uh, And and what was your call to run for uh, office? I would start by just saying that I I come from a long line of educators. So my granddad was a lifelong educator, my dad a lifelong educator, my mom a lifelong educator. And so initially I determined to follow suit and pursue a career in education, Uh, but I also um, grew up in the faith community and and felt very strongly about serving in, in the local church. And so I became an ordained minister and, and served as a minister on staff in a local congregation for 19 years, but ultimately felt um, the call to public service. And, and I'm a big believer that uh, done properly, the opportunity to serve in office is a tremendous way to to truly improve society and, and help people reach their full potential. And so in 2000, I made the decision to run for office. Actually, it was in 1999, uh, but ultimately was elected and had the opportunity to serve for 12 years in the state legislature, 12 long years. And um, it was a great experience and a great opportunity. And and I'm very, very thankful for that experience and 
believe that a title is not necessary to continue to impact change and promote good public policy. So we're still uh, in the arena of advocacy and uh, policy development for Oklahoma. And when did criminal justice reform get put on your radar as a, as a top issue for you? Was there an inciting incident, a particular uh, issue that came to the fore? What, what made that something that uh, would become one of your central passions? Absolutely. So the reality is when I was first elected, the Republican Party was in the minority in, in the Oklahoma House of Representatives. So from 2000 to 2004, uh, I served in the minority party. I would just pause and mention that I think more than anything else, to prepare my time as speaker, it was that experience of being able to serve in the minority. I learned very quickly that the rules that we have in place in our form of government ultimately exist to protect the voice of the minority and, and, and all voices so that collectively everyone is able to represent their constituencies and add to the greater discussion uh, to create good uh, outcomes and, and, and appropriate public policy. That being said, when the Republican Party took over in the Oklahoma legislature in 2004, I had a little bit of seniority and continued to gain seniority. And so in 2008, I was given some additional responsibility over our state budget. And the directive from the current speaker at that time for me was to go and find ways that we could increase efficiencies and make better use of state resources. And so I took that charge seriously and I began to do my homework. And when I was reviewing the, the trends in Oklahoma state budget, the thing that jumped off the page for me was the amount of money we were spending on our correctional system. Literally in 2008, spending for corrections in Oklahoma had become our state's second fastest growing expenditure. And it was ironic to me because literally in every discussion, in every debate, in every decision that I participated in, the purpose behind corrections policy or corrections spending was to reduce crime and increase public safety. And so when I realized in 2008 just how much money we were spending as a state on corrections, I thought to myself initially, this must mean that we have the best public safety rating of any state in the nation. And I was puzzled, uh, perplexed when I began to look around and see what was going on in other states and realized that not only did we have the highest incarceration rates, uh, but our crime rate was not decreasing nearly at the, at the rate that other states who had already began to enact reform uh, was seeing uh, improvements. And so I, I was puzzled because uh, we were not achieving the outcomes that we say that we were hoping to achieve at that point in time. And it sort of led to a quest to try to understand how we could ultimately make better use of our resources and produce better outcomes. Jacob, I would say that, that at that moment in time, I not only began to study policy from other states, I began to visit personally prisons in Oklahoma to see who it is that we are incarcerating and what we're doing to help these individuals move beyond a troubled past. 
And I think it was those encounters that that proximity, those personal experiences where I realized that the reality is that the people in prison in Oklahoma are no different than the people outside of prison in Oklahoma. I think the, the, the main difference between a person who is incarcerated and the person who is not is that the person who is got caught. I realize that we're all Oklahomans and that it is in our state's best interest to find ways to utilize and and redeem and restore the talent and the value of every single Oklahoman. There is no such thing as a spare Oklahoman. And why in the world we would exclude an individual from participating productively within our communities is beyond me. And so it really became... um, an issue that that I thought, my goodness, we we have to do better. We have to do better first and foremost, just in uh, full confession. My motivation was to do better from a financial standpoint. But then when I really began to discover the devastating effect uh, on individuals and on families who get caught up in the a broken system, uh, the motivation for me became to help restore the lives of individuals who live in our state. Well, and you touched on that initial financial motive, and and actually, let's let's dig into that just a, a little bit and, and broaden our scope because the the topic of criminal justice reform is unique in the sense that it, it creates a scenario where there are a lot of uh, odd bedfellows. Um, while it's easy to envision criminal justice reform as being an issue of the left, or you know, uh, pick any other political issue, and depending on where you're at, you can see where the partisan divide would be. Where oh, this is a majority right issue, this is a majority left issue. Of course, there being outliers. But what really surprises folks is when they come to learn that some of the cornerstone entities in conservative politics, and, and I'm talking like the Koch brothers, I'm talking Americans for Prosperity, are also investing in, in the cause of criminal justice reform, knowing that there's a wide a spectrum of issues that bring people to this cause. Uh, you shared with us kind of as a Republican how you first came upon criminal justice reform. More broadly, what do you think it is about this topic specifically? that has such aisle-spanning appeal? It's a great observation, and, and you're, you're spot on in your analysis. The, the reality is that I discovered while in the legislature and still today, when we are building consensus and, and support for sound, data-driven, evidence-based policy decisions in relation to criminal justice reform, we're able to, to communicate to our friends on the right, those who identify themselves as fiscal conservatives and, and believe that they are elected to, to make sure that our state is utilizing its resources in the most responsible and effective and efficient manner possible, we're able to have conversations with them to say, hey, it's it's wonderful that your motivation is based on fiscal responsibility. That's great. And because of that, you really ought to be concerned and involved in making sure we do not continue to throw millions of dollars into a broken system that is not only failing to produce the results that we intend for it to produce, but it's also destroying families in the process. And so we're able to have that conversation conversation with fiscal conservatives to say, look, if you truly care about making good use of state resources, you, you really cannot be okay with continuing to waste money on an inefficient, broken system. Simultaneously, we're able to have a, a conversation with our friends who are more progressive 
on the political spectrum and say, you know, that's wonderful. We're so glad that you have that perspective and that you're bringing that perspective to the legislature. And because that is your perspective, you really ought to care about the inequalities, the uh, discrepancies, the inhumane treatment that is taking place of individuals that are caught up in our system. And we, we've got to tackle that. So this is truly an issue that allows us to come together. It allows us to work together. And it allows us to solve problems collectively. And when we're able to do that, I think it represents who we are at our best. Well, we're going to talk a lot about your work outside of the state legislature on criminal justice reform. Uh, let's stay in the legislature just a little bit. So can you talk a bit about what your experience was like learning about criminal justice reform and, and trying to take initial steps to enact reform in the legislature? What, what was that experience uh, like compared to your experience now that you interface, not just with elected officials, but with the public at large on a lot of these initiatives? Initially, the experience was traumatic because this is not an issue. Criminal justice reform advocating on behalf of individuals who have been convicted of a mistake is not a traditional issue that Republicans or conservatives in Oklahoma have championed. And so to be able to introduce this as a priority or as a conservative issue initially was met with skepticism, with opposition, with apathy and oftentimes with scorn. And the reality is that I receive, I knew in my heart that this is the issue, the right issue. And, and there were steps along the way, key moments that validated the need to work on this issue. One of those moments one of the most impactful moments took place here in Tulsa when I was invited by a colleague to visit this brand new program in 2009 by the name of Women in Recovery. They said, this is a, a brand new concept. This is an opportunity to demonstrate an alternative to prison for women who battle with addiction and trauma and need additional help. And I made the trip sort of, in all honesty, a little bit reluctantly at first, when I experienced what was happening in Women in Recovery, and I met the, the individuals, and I heard their stories, and I listened to how much they love their families, and more than anything else, they want to be a good employee, and a good mother, and a good member of the community, I thought to myself, this is the solution. And so, it, you know, the, the validation that took place along the way provided the motivation to continue the conversation. And then we just continued to persevere and making sure that, that individuals understood in Oklahoma that this is an issue that merits our full attention, and it merits support, and it merits uh, research, and it merits the efforts that it takes to make sure that we have good policies. And sort of at that time in, in 2000, I would say 2009, 2010, 2011, other states had begun to enact reform, other conservative states like the state of Texas and South Carolina and North Carolina, states that were similar enough to our political composition that we could also learn and draw from them. And so it was a step at a time. And I think the voters in Oklahoma are really the key. They're the catalyst behind the conversation that is occurring now because the people in our state are good people. And, and we understand the, the, the value in helping one another. 
And so ultimately, when the voters began to sort of weigh in and say, you know what, we can do better. We should not be spending so much of our resources on this punitive retribution, you know, the system that's based on retribution. We ought to be reconsidering how we can ultimately invest in the people in our state so that they can reach their full potential. I think that that, that really propelled the conversation to a new level. But but early on, it was difficult. You know, there was a lot of uh, closed doors and we're not interested kind of responses. But um, just like anything else, when you're able to stay after it and, and provide sound data on why uh, an issue merits um, an individual's attention, sooner or later, I think that you can break through the barriers and begin to have meaningful conversation, which I think is what's happening in our state right now. Well, and and to your point about the participation on the part of Oklahoma voters, uh, before we get into your newest efforts, let's let's talk about some past successes uh, and the Oklahoma voter. Uh, Let's talk about specifically State Question 780. And uh, for our listeners, this was the ballot initiative uh, that reclassified a a number of offenses related to property crimes and simple drug possessions as as misdemeanors, um, which passed in 2016 with just about 60% of Oklahomans voting yes for it, which then led in turn to the largest commutation in uh, U.S. history this past November with more than 450 people being released from prison. Looking back at 780 over the years since it was initially passed in uh, 2016 uh, through the commutation, through the conversations that have surrounded November's uh, historic commutation, uh, what are your thoughts on 780's current implementation. So as it stands right now, the reforms contained within State Question 780 ultimately have been in effect for just over two years in the state of Oklahoma. So I want to be careful to qualify my response by saying that it's still early yet. But we are seeing very positive signs that, that the reforms contained within State Question 780 are working. For example, the overall property crime rate in Oklahoma has decreased. It is lower now than it was before the reforms took effect. In addition to that, we're seeing a tremendous decrease in the number of drug-induced suicides in the state of Oklahoma, which is reason to celebrate from the mountaintops. And so what we know is that addiction is a disease. It's a health issue. And individuals who battle addiction ought to be treated as patients, not as prisoners. And so for over 40 years, the state of Oklahoma responded to issues of addiction through criminal penalties. The solution for Oklahoma for an individual who battled addiction was incarceration. Well, that's ridiculous, and, and I think now we understand that it makes no sense to treat a health condition as a crime. And so that's really the motivation behind the reforms in State Question 780. It's, it's basically to say, hey, wait a minute. If a person is battling addiction, if a person has this health condition, we ought to treat it through health care, through, through substance abuse treatment, through proper mental health support and access to mental health care and treatment. The second half of State Question 780 was State Question 781, 
which very clearly directs the Office of Management and Enterprise Services, which is the financial entity within state government, to calculate the savings from reducing our prison population of individuals who may be charged with simple possession or low-level property crimes, calculate the savings from not incarcerating those individuals, and determine how much that is ultimately saving the taxpayers of Oklahoma, and then make that number known to the state legislature. The state legislature then has the legal obligation to reinvest that amount directly into substance abuse treatment and mental health care in counties throughout the state of Oklahoma. So just to give you an idea of where we're at in relation to that aspect, in the first 12 months of implementation, OMES calculated that State Question 780 saved the people of Oklahoma $60 million. Um, that number, that, that formula is, is maybe a little bit uh, still under debate. That, that number may be a little bit high, but the savings are there. In year two, this past year, OMES indicated that State Question 780 saved the taxpayers of Oklahoma just over $26 million. And we are hoping and we are pushing and we are doing everything that we can to encourage the legislature to do what the law says and reappropriate that $26 million directly to counties so that they can increase access to substance abuse treatment and mental health care for individuals who need those services. And 781 is going to be a critical piece in, in fully realizing the value of 780 to Oklahomans. Um, that, that said, we have had a lot of naysayers come to the fore since 780 was enacted. You know, they talk a lot about uh, crime increases. They want to talk about recidivism and, you know, that it's only a matter of time before the vast majority of these individuals are reincarcerated. And while Personally, I may not uh, agree with how they express these sentiments. Uh, what I will agree with is that individuals re-entering society from incarceration definitely have the deck stacked against them in, in a wide variety of ways. And so the argument can be made that in a lot of ways, maybe we are setting these individuals up to fail. The 781 funding, realizing that that's a, a part of uh, the solution, uh, what other things stand between Oklahoma and its ability to fully realize the benefits of 780 in your mind? It's a great question. I would start by sort of validating the fact that our current system does set people up to fail. I mean, the reality is when a person has paid their debt, served their time, and reentered society, they still have this scarlet letter of a felony conviction that excludes them from participating pro-socially in so many aspects of life. They're also reentering society with enormous amounts of debt in the way of fees and fines that they are required to pay back to the state of Oklahoma. It is not uncommon for an individual to reenter society owing six to $10,000 in the way of fees and fines, and they have to pay that back. And then in addition to that, they're placed on supervision, and they have to pay a fee to be supervised on a monthly basis. And then you add all the other conditions that are usually tacked onto a person's supervision. If it's required that they go to treatment, it's not uncommon for that individual to have to pay for the treatment. If they have to go to anger management classes, they're required to pay for those classes. If they have to go to whatever else sort of condition, they generally have to pay for that. 
we need to find a way first and foremost to re- reduce the financial burden placed on individuals who are reentering society. It is unconscionable that we would seek to pay for our criminal justice system on the backs of those who can least afford to pay for it. And then we punish them when they're unable to pay for that. So we have to change all that first and foremost, I think. And then in addition to that, I think we have to consider ways that we can actually shorten the length of a person's supervision. It's not only the terms of incarceration that are excessive in the state of Oklahoma, it's also the terms of supervision. And so we pretty much know, according to the research, how a person is going to do and how they're going to behave, you know, in a short period of time. There's no need to continue to keep a person on supervision for 10 years, for 15 years, for for 20 years or beyond. And so we need to consider ways that we can incentivize good behavior and and not apply undue or excessive supervision on the backs of individuals. Um, And then I also think that we need to consider ways that we can allow a person's record to be expunged sooner rather than later, um, as soon as possible. I'm I'm at a point in my life that if a person has paid their debt and served their time, let's just give them a, a fresh start, a clean slate, and, and let's set them up to succeed and not set them up to fail. Absolutely. And so let's pivot then to the next thing that is is on your plate uh, in terms of criminal justice reform. You know, as we we look to ease things for the justice involved and and everything that uh, you know their justice involvement touches, and let's talk about State Question Eight Hundred Five. Your group, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, uh, authored State Question Eight Hundred Five, which is aimed at tackling sentence enhancements. Uh, for for those not in the know, what are sentence enhancements? Sentence enhancements are additional gears that can be added to a person's prison sentence, time in prison, uh, completely at the discretion of prosecutors if an individual has a prior conviction on their record. So if, if, if a person has uh, stumbled at any point in life and they have been convicted of a felony conviction, they can be clean, they can be productive, they can do everything right for 10, 15, 20 years. But then if they stumble again, because they had that past previous conviction, the court system led by prosecutors are able to add years, sometimes decades, even life to a person's sentence through this mechanism called sentence enhancements. Uh, and it, it's, it's just cruel. It is unproductive, and, and it's it's designed uh, to make an example out of a person. And there's no evidence that these excessive sentences, these sentence enhancements, reduce crime, increase public safety. In fact, the, the research is very clear. It does nothing but make a situation worse. It adds to the instability. It adds to the cost to taxpayers, and it's just unnecessary. There is no place for sentence enhancements in a modern criminal justice system. And so what happens in these situations is that additional, uh, unnecessary additional time is applied to a person's sentence. Let's go ahead and talk about the impact of sentence enhancements. And and I'd like to ask about three populations specifically. And uh, so I'll ask one big question um, so you can kind of tie it all together. 
How are Oklahomans, justice involved or otherwise, impacted by sentence enhancements? And so let's, you know, individuals who are justice involved and the non-justice involved Oklahomans, and you talked a bit about taxpayers there. And then the third group, um, you know, how might this impact uh, individuals dealing with severe mental illness or chronic homelessness or substance use disorders? And then to put a button on it all, how does state question 805 seek to change this impact on, on these three groups? Sure. So first and foremost, it's important to to note, and and I I do want to add that in in Oklahoma, I think I think a dynamic that has played a factor into our current incarceration crisis is that oftentimes legislators base their decisions in relation to corrections policy on emotion and on anecdotes and on fear. And when we get to the point where we can begin to base decisions on research and data and facts, I think that this issue becomes a no-brainer. And so just to just to kind of elaborate that on that, there's a saying in our state that Oklahoma tends to incarcerate people we're mad at rather than people we're afraid of. And that statement is very true. Very true. I, I would just offer as proof that recently Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, through some very talented interns at Tulsa Law School, were able to successfully advocate for the favorable recommendation to commute 21 life sentences. Of the 21 life sentences, five of these individuals were serving life without the possibility for parole. In all 21 cases, the individual was convicted of a nonviolent offense. Jacob, I want to be very clear. Under no circumstances should a person convicted of a nonviolent offense be sentenced to life in prison. It's unheard of in other states. And so when we really begin to do our research and, and, and do the analysis, what we find is that individuals convicted of drug crimes in Oklahoma spend 79% longer in prison than the national average. Individuals convicted of property crimes in our state spend nearly 70% longer in prison than, than other states, than the national average. That's a waste. It's a waste of human capital. It's a waste of, of state resources. It's destroying families, and, and it's unnecessary. It, it, it's mean, and it's unnecessary. And so ultimately, what we are seeking to do is we're seeking to bring our sentencing guidelines in line with national averages so that if a person is required to go to prison, they're not going to prison for um, undue amounts of time. Uh, the research would say that that what is effective is immediate, certain sanctions, not the length of the sanction, but just the the timing and and the the swiftness of the consequence. And so, what we are seeking to do is reduce these unnecessary lengthy sentences, uh, first and foremost, so that we can protect individuals, but then also so that we can free up resources 
to invest in effective programming, in meaningful accountability structures within the community so that a person can deal with the core issues that may be driving the antisocial behavior so that they can get the help that they need to go on to lead successful, productive lives. And so, I mean, your, your question about how does this impact individuals who battle chronic mental illness or, or even homelessness, we see often that uh, individuals are arrested for trespassing. I mean, my goodness, that they, they're trespassing oftentimes to find a place to, to be warm or, or to, find, to seek shelter of some sort. And that can, that can be a conviction on their record that could lead to uh, uh, excessive sentences that, that are just unnecessary. We, we need to get to the point where we are seeing the real issue behind the behavior and dealing with those issues. I mean, if, if we were focused more on making sure that people had adequate places to stay uh, and, and had access to the help that they need, there wouldn't even be a need for the number of prison beds in the state of Oklahoma. So why now? Now on sentence enhancements, what was it about the criminal justice reform landscape that caused you to uh, look at the variety of routes you could take and, and identify sentence enhancements as the, the natural next step? Well, I think it's, it's understanding who is comprising our prison population in Oklahoma we're we're understanding that that a variety of states have already uh, taken measures to reduce sentence enhancements. We we understand that the research validates that there's there's no value in these excessive sentences, and that it's really out of control. And so it's the next logical step to say, okay, how do we bring our sentencing guidelines in line with best practices? How do we incorporate evidence-based sentencing guidelines? And the first step in that is to eliminate uh, this abusive act of sentence enhancements in Oklahoma. Okay, Chris, well, we are running low on time. I want to thank you so very much for uh, being here on the Mental Health Download, for uh, sharing your uh, journey, uh, your thoughts around your current efforts with us. Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in the discussion with you today. I'm very excited to be here and, and super thankful and grateful for the work that you do. Thank you, Chris. All right, so Jacob, that was an amazing interview. What are your big takeaways from this Chris Steele interview? Yeah, I think my my big takeaways and, and uh, from this interview with Chris Steele and, and something I really want to impress upon all of our, our listeners, if, if you're concerned about criminal justice reform and, and you heard Chris speak to this, it really is everyone's job. You don't need to have director in your title. You don't need to be a former speaker within the Oklahoma legislator. You don't even have to have a policy background. Criminal justice is something that impacts each and every Oklahoman, and it really is about uh, empowering yourself and empowering others to engage. Uh, change really can be made at the local level, and what Chris is doing and Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform are doing with State Question 805, what we all did with State Question 780 and 781 is, is prove very literally that it is everyday Oklahomans. It's, it's you in your home, in your car right now that can uh, make that change. And so I just want to underscore how much impact you as the listener can have uh, on this. It's uh, the only way change has ever been made. So yeah, thanks so much, Chris, if you're listening for uh, coming and speaking with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, everybody get out there and go do good things. <laughs>